Welcome to the Rekindling Ministries podcast series. I just finished a brownie, so I'm feeling really good. Um, <laughs> this is episode 3.11e. So this is the fifth subsession uh, yes. in this whole unpacking evil and sin. And so today, this episode, we're going to be discussing what is God's response to sin, i.e., how does he respond when obedience occurs and how does he respond when, when sin occurs? So my name is Shannon Kirkpatrick. And my name is Zach Rios. And my name is Connor High. All right, so as always, um, we're kind of rapid-firing since we have so many set, you know, so many episodes yeah. here with the, with this topic. I think that we said we're, we're calculating this total is going to run like seven or eight hours total <laughs> of, of material, which is great because it's just tons of stuff. Which is up from our estimate of four to six hours, which right. we started. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll learn my lesson one of these days just to stop even trying to guess. Um, so let's do a quick recap of the first four episodes um, breaking down, you know, what evil and sin is. Okay, so episode 3.11a, we were really working on defining what evil and sin actually are. And so we had that four-point definition of evil, so we said that E0s were worthless, E1s are displeasing, E2s are detrimental or harmful, and E3s are actually immoral, and that relates back to the good study with the G0 through G3s, which are the inverse of that. And then we also have been talking about sin and defining it as primarily a turning away from God and his beneficial things, and secondarily, turning to something else. In uh, episode B, we looked at what does sin result in, and with that, there were six points. Uh, sin results in pleasure. Mm. It results in a detriment to your or others' well-being. Um, it results in a prevention of other beneficial goods, such as peace, joy, intimacy. Um, and we also noted there it's not a separation from God or a harming of his holiness and glory. Um, uh, number four, it results in a spiraling down with sin begetting more sin. Uh, number five, five, eventually death. Um, that was split into physical and spiritual death. And for believers, we actually have this crossed out on here because mm-hmm. we don't experience uh, spiritual right. death. Right. And then lastly, it's an opportunity for patience, forgiveness, and grace, um, and other beneficial goods. And kind of the one of the key other key takeaways of that is that because um, we won't experience spiritual death, um, we don't necessarily have to look at sin as a critical issue, um, but we can look at it as a serious issue, which changes our perspective and um, in our frame of mind when we look at sin and try to resist sin in the future. Yeah, so one of the themes of this whole study and all these episodes is we're trying to um, take back definitions, you know, according to Scripture, to reboot um, and rethink what all this stuff is. Um, And so we have these phrases like... um, that it's sin is a is serious not critical we talk about the implications of that you can go back and listen to to all those episodes so so that was the second one so then the third episode 3.11c we got into the why of all of it so why why does sin and evil exist why does this all good perfect holy god allow it and so we spent an hour and a half working through uh, we took a whole bunch of you know different readings and theories and elements in scripture verses and compiled it all we, we proposed to you guys a theory on how we can really wrap our mind around why this perfect good holy god allows evil and it's very 
it was very encouraging for me um, in helping better understand that we're in this this broken prologue, right? We're in the beta version of life, and that is what it is. Remember, actually, we didn't even say this before. Remember in the Job study that we did a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. we were watching um, the BibleProject.com's videos. It's a fantastic website. Those guys are great. And in the Job video that we were watching, they made a statement, this world was never intended to not have suffering. And it was just a powerful statement, uh, and, and it helped kind of wrap our mind around that more. So that that was the that was the third episode. Um, the fourth episode, to give a quick recap of that, we kind of looked at specific sins, um, and so those were kind of those were um, split up into commands and uh, prohibitions. And so we looked at what those sins were, and then also practical application of of looking at sins in this way and realizing uh, these different categories that sins are in, and not ranking them. Um, as we see is often done. Right. That, that was a powerful study that we encourage you to go back and, well, of course, listen to all of them, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that that can really begin, that episode, well, all these, but could be a huge shift mm-hmm. in the way you think and see things. And a lot of times we don't want to make the shift because we've always believed what we've always believed. And it's easier to just it's keep It's easier that. just to hold to that. And to sit there and realize, ooh, I need to start thinking about it this way, meant that you were thinking about it in a, an incomplete or wrong way before, and our pride doesn't like to mention that. Mm-hmm. But, it, but we want to encourage you that, that we feel this is really accurate with Scripture, and it's going to put you in that healthier mindset and heart that the Connors mentioned before to really actually tackle all this better. Yeah, and another one of those mindset issues that we briefly mentioned and uh, I just wanted to bring up here, it is a rabble, rabbit trail that we're not going to actually solve for you guys, but something that uh, Shan said is that we're not under the Mosaic Law. And so uh, we, I do want to mention, because it was said really quickly, so I did want to say that like that is actually the view that we hold because we're under this new law that we see all of these different commands and prohibitions and different things. Um, but that's different than being under the Old Testament law, yeah. which there's different perspectives on, which we recognize. Um, but we just wanted to more clearly define what our perspective was with that. Excuse me, man. I'm still sick. Sorry. In uh, in seminary, we were learning. Um, so Paul, like when it comes to the law, there's there's the Mosaic law of the Old Testament that you know, that, that Christ com- you know fulfilled. So we're no longer held to it. And then there's the new law, the Spirit. And we were learning that when Paul it talks about the law, some when he he'll just say the law. Sometimes he means the Mosaic law. Sometimes he means the this law, the Spirit, and he doesn't always Tell identify which, which it is. And so you could get confused. You need to be paying really careful attention to which law he's referring to when he's talking about it. Same for righteousness, because righteousness, and we'll do an unpacking on this, but it can mean to have like a right standing or right relationship or being in the right spot with God, or it can also mean right behavior. Hmm. Um, and Paul will talk about righteousness, and he won't tell you which one he's talking about. And so you have to pay attention to the context. And it's like, oh, thanks, Paul. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyways, so so – this episode is, you know, so how, how does God respond to sin? Or And we'll also talk about the inverse to, to obedience. This is a big one. It, I don't know if this will be a long one because we're going to get kind of just straight to the point. But it's a big one. It's a powerful one. This this is, I just want to kind of narrate this a little bit before we get into the, to the, to the scripture. When I, you know, you guys know from season one, I, I gave my whole story. So I grew up in the church, strong Christian family, loving to death. And then in my 20s did my prodigal son stage for about a decade and so still believe that god existed and the bible was true and jesus was lord just i was in the boat or hanging off the side of the boat with a bottle of jack in my hand you know um just bartending and partying so i was sleeping around and the, the dy and you know all that jazz 
And by the end, because because I, I wanted to do life my way. Um, and then by the end of my twenties, realized that apparently my way is not going to work. Uh, apparently God's smarter than I am. He actually cares about me more than I care about myself. And so it was in my late twenties, early thirties. And I'm just like, Lord, you got to take over again. Cause I can't do this. I can't run my life as well as you can. And so recommitted to him in that whole journey. Right. And then when and it started rekindling and all that anyways, it was in April of two. Um, when I recommitted, I was, <coughs> I was living in Dallas, Texas and I had a couple months of just depression. I'm not a depressed person, you know? And I'm like, why am I depressed? I need to sort this out. And that's why I was concluding, you know what? I haven't been running my life well. It's not worked. I need to change something new. What should I do? Well, I need to go back to what I grew up under. You know, what my parents taught me. I need, I need to put God back in, in first in my life again. So it was in April of 02 at my apartment there in Dallas. And just I was bawling my eyes out. You know, I was, like, I was desperate, you know. Hmm. And... In my head, because the, 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 the Nazarene denomination has done a lot of good for me, they're also a little bit more on the legalistic side. So that some of that, you know, maybe you were directly taught it, maybe it was more the perception was this, right? Um, but it was kind of like God's always ticked off because of all the sin in the world. And so you almost kind of have to tiptoe into his presence. And again, I'm not saying I was necessarily taught that, but that's just kind of the conclusion I'd reached. So in my mind, when I recommitted to him, I knew that he would take me back because of the prodigal son's story. But I thought he would do it while rolling his eyes. Hmm. And the idea being like, all right, fine. You know, I have to take you back. It's part of my job. Um, not really fond of you right now because of all the sin that you've done. But I'll bring you back in. I'm going to put you on probation. We'll kind of keep you off to the side. If you prove yourself, then maybe we'll, we'll, you and I can get along better. This is what I was expecting. And I didn't get that. When, it, when I was sitting there in my apartment there on the floor in the living room, all I felt this presence of like excitement and joy that God was just like ecstatic that we were having this conversation and, and then I was coming back into the fold, which actually makes sense because that's exactly how the prodigal son's dad responded, mm -hmm. that he hiked his robes up and ran down the road to meet his son and put a party together. So even though I knew that was in the text, that's not what I was expecting. So it caught me off guard. I'm like, this is weird. Because you think about, for example, let's say somebody has really offended you. And then they come back broken, sincerely apologizing and taking ownership for that. You appreciate it. Right. And hopefully you are going to forgive them, but you're still a little ticked. Hmm. So you're a little bit standoffish, you know, when they first come to you and then eventually you calm down. And so I just kind of assumed that's what God was going to do. And it didn't happen. So it caught me off guard. I'm like, I don't understand why you're so excited, hmm. given all that I've done, because I was still focused on behavior, the do, not the be, et cetera. And he's like, son, I'm crazy about you. I made you right. I knit you in your mother's womb alongside your, your fraternal twin brother. In 1972, in, in, in Illinois there, I knit you. I determined the time and place of your birth. I gave you Shirley and Howe as your parents. Um, I have watched you this entire time. I am crazy about you. And yes, I have not liked all these actions that you've taken, these prohibitions that you've done, the commandments that you haven't done, right? I, 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 I grieve that so much debt, you've caused so much detriment for yourself and others. And I grieve that you haven't experienced this benefit that I've wanted you to experience if you had done these things, according to me. So I, I grieve all that. But I want a relationship with you. I want to spend eternity with you. And so I just want to hug you and I want to dance. I'm just so excited that we can have this conversation again. And I'm just like, who is this? Like, this was new to me. I, I think I experienced some of that, you know, in my childhood a little bit, but nothing to that scale. 
And then fast forward a couple years, not that it was a couple years later this happened, but I'm just giving you some examples. And this is me being totally honest and vulnerable again. So this is before I came down here to, to Lynchburg before seminary. I was a youth pastor at a Chinese church for a couple of years. And one Saturday, I had a, one of my, a couple of my old buddies from my old drinking days that I kept in touch with. They were not believers, but kept in touch, loved them, loved them. I still to this day still hang out with them, love them. One of them had a birthday. So we all went out to one, an Irish pub um, that Saturday night. And, you know, have a Guinness, have two Guinnesses. And it was a bunch of the old guys that some of them I hadn't seen in a long, long time. And so some of them, let's do shots. I'm like, oh, I'll do a shot, you know. So I did a shot. Well, two beers and a shot, you're, you're, you're buzzing, you're spinning. And then you're like, I'll, I'll do one more, then I'll go. And so it was like 11 o'clock or midnight. And so I had that fourth one, and then, and then I went home. And as I went home, I was totally spinning. And I'm like, are you kidding me, Shannon? You already have a DUI on your record. You've already been down this road and this before. You know, here you are, a youth pastor at this Chinese church. And you went and you had these four drinks, which is beyond what your uh, uh, tolerance can, can deal with now, you know. And I was so mad at myself. And so then when I woke up on Sunday morning, I was hungover. I'm, I'm on my way to go youth pastor at the Chinese church, and I'm hungover. And I'm like, so I, I felt so guilty, and I almost called in sick that morning. And I felt like God whispering to me, if you call in sick, that's another sin. So don't. Take a shower. Get up. Let's go in. I took a shower. I got up. I'm driving. It's about a 20-minute drive to the church. And I'm, I'm miserable. I mean, I am miserable. I feel so guilty. I feel such a hypocrite. I mean, it's, it's just I'm in a bad spot. <clears throat> and I, I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like teaching the sermon, you know, the message, none of that stuff. And so I'm just praying in, in, in the, the um, truck there. And all I felt was, and actually and we, was the helmet thing. So I'll go ahead and just say that now. The, you know, let's, let's say a football player in a game throws an interception. Hmm. And they get really dejected because they threw the interception. But like the coach and some of the other smart players know we, we got to let him get past this. So they'll, they'll butt heads with the helmet or they'll slap him on the butt or whatever and say, hey, we, you know, it's interception. We're going to move on. We got a whole game to play. Hmm. That's what I got. I just felt like, like this, this, like a helmet kind of head button. We got this. And I'm sitting here waiting to be, to be punished for the sin that I did. I need to be, um, um, I need to pay some sort of penance. So I was like, Lord, in this 20-minute drive, help me pay this penance so I can get it done, get it off my record, you know, et cetera, so like I can walk in with a clear mind and clear heart, clear soul. And God's like, there is no penance. I, I did it. So you don't have to do any penance. There's nothing to do to get off the record. It's already off the record. So and here's the thing. You clearly recognize you, you've done something you should have done. So you've confessed it. You've acknowledged it. We're good. So it was interception. It was what it was. Move on. We, 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 got a, we got a message to give to these kids. Let's pour into that. I was confused by that because I felt like, again, I had to dwell on the fact of the sin that I had done. You got to dwell on it. You got to beat yourself up over it. You got to rehash it. You got to <coughs> purify yourself, etc. Didn't get it. Just got this headbutt. Uh, hey, we got this. You know, yeah, it was a sin. Of course it was. Forgive it. Off the record. So I'm not worried about that now because you confessed. I wanted the confession. You got it. Let's focus now on the message. If I was mature back then, I would have accepted. Oh, at first I was pushing back on that. Like, I don't, this is, I, don't, I don't believe this. And then I heard this little voice saying, who do you think speaking to you right now? And, I, and I'm like crying in the truck. I'm like, I think this is the creator speaking to me. And he goes, you're right. It is. And I'm telling you, it's done. It's off your record. On we go. And I wish now what I know is to accept that and receive it. Okay, it's done. Off my record. Here we go. And then go teach. I didn't. I still dwelled on it. I was still guilty. I felt nasty when I was given the message. It was just a messy Sunday, right? But it stuck with me. Uh, and then one more example. 
So when I got down to seminary, um, was just wrestling through sin, you know, all of the stuff that we're going through now. And I was thinking about my past. And I was thinking about the abortion from my early 20s and all that. I was just having a hard time kind of reconciling that and even the sin that I was still doing. And I'm like, I need to, I need to not blow it off. And so, so, and this is what we're going to kind of discuss here, but coming to grips with that, when you sin, you, you, it's like taking, like, like I always picture God's got his arms around me in this hug, kind of tousling my hair, kissing me on the cheek, hugging me, you know? And when I sin, I'm stabbing him. This is from Genesis five, which we'll reference here in a minute. And so I'm stabbing him. And like, like I have awesome parents who are very, very loving. And so, but if, if they were hugging me and I stabbed them, they'd pull away. Right, because they're getting stabbed, and they would wait for the situation to calm down, and they would sort all that out. But they would always come back. So I just assumed that God was the same way. That when you sin and you're stabbing him, he pulls away because it's harming him in some way, or affronting him, or disrespecting him, whatever. But he'll always come back. But then we, we've mentioned this already. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And I'm like, I have to come to grips with both these things. Fact number one: When I sin, I'm stabbing into God. I don't even want to think about that. God's like, you need to. Hmm. You need to recognize what you do. When you, when you turn from me, it hurts me. So you need to recognize that. And you need to equally recognize that I don't leave you. So this analogy was, you know, God was hugging me and I'm stabbing him with sins I've done in the past, sins I'm doing now, et cetera. I'm stabbing him and he doesn't let go. He, he, just, he just holds on that much tighter. And I'm like, um, nope, that's heresy. You know, I don't believe that. That's me just making stuff up. And I heard a little voice say, why do you think that? And I said, because nobody's that good. And then I just instantly just started bawling my eyes out because it began to click for me. He really is that good. And it changed my understanding of how God responds to my sin. You can get the analogy of like a bouncer at a bar and some guy's wasted and he's swinging punches. And let's say he even hits the, the bouncer. Some bouncers are going to start swinging back, right? The, uh, uh, Andy, Andy Benton that you guys know has done some of the unpackings. Mm-hmm. He used to be a bouncer. And big guy. He talks about how you got to be calm. And so you imagine this really calm bouncer. So the drunk guy's swinging. He doesn't swing back. He doesn't get irritated. Doesn't take it personal. The guy's drunk. And he just, now he'll calmly, you know, wrench that guy's arm up <laughs> behind his back, right, to, to yeah. put him down. So he's, he's, taken, he's been, uh, taken initiative with that. Uh, being intentional but anyways but he's very calm or let's say there's a counselor and, and they have somebody in a counseling session and the person that's getting the counseling is just in a bad place emotionally and they just explode in anger and they're chewing out their counselor and they're yelling and screaming they're calling the counselor names but that counselor knows not to take it personal that hurt people hurt people right and so they're calm and they this calm approach to it all you look at these examples and you would admire the calm intentional um in control bouncer or, or the same with the counselor and i'm like we would admire that but i don't think god's that way i think he gets all irritated and yells at me that can't be right because why would they do a better job than he would if he's the perfect god he'd yeah. probably take a mature response so all that i, I just wanted to throw that out there <coughs> as, <coughs> as we go through this is that we're encouraging you guys you need to rethink what you think about god and what you think about his repro- approach to sin is. And so we're going to go through some scripture here, and then we're, we're going to list some things out for you guys of just really trying to understand. A court, let, let the Bible paint the picture that it wants to paint. And, and this is how God responds to sin, and it's probably going to be different than what you thought. Hmm. So uh, having said that, let's go ahead and, and, and get into this stuff. So we're going to list out here a couple key passages that ha- had jumped out at us. The first one I just referenced is Genesis 6, 5 to 7. This is the right before the flood. 
and it talks about how the world that the Lord looked out and saw the world was wicked in all his ways and he was grieved and cut to the heart as that that pain reference so one thing we know is that God grieves and is pained by evil by sin and in the Hebrew there the grieved some translations call this regret that God regretted that he'd made man the word itself actually means to sigh or breathe deeply and so they would say it's because he regretted, right? And I wonder a little bit if that's the most accurate translation. But the literal idea is just sighing and breathing deeply, just this heavy. <sighs> so when sin occurs, God just sighs and breathes heavily in this grieving. And then he is pained. He is stabbed. <clears throat> the Hebrew word akab means like to cut or to carve. So it carves him. It hurts him. Why? Because of his love, right? Um, but so, so, so that's one thing that jumped out at me, that God grieves and is pained by sin and evil. Um, another thing uh, that we see is on occasion, God has deep anger and displays terrible wrath on sin. Um, and he uses it as an effective tool to either shake people to repentance or to destroy them utterly if he knows there will be no repentance. Um, and we see that a lot in the Old Testament. Some of the passages are Deuteronomy 8. 11 through 17, Deuteronomy 31, 15 through 22, uh, Judges 2, 11 through 23, Ezekiel 36, 16 through 32. Now, a lot of times we frame this um, kind of like a wrathful God in the Old Testament, you know, in his dealings with the Israelites um, or with different uh, stories in the Old Testament. Um, but I think a lot of times we overlook that there are so many instances of him being patient with mm-hmm. sin and patient um, and displaying patience even after continual sin, like repeated sin, especially when you look at the Israelites um, as they, in Exodus, mm-hmm. as they're leaving um, Egypt and just that whole journey uh, through the wilderness, repeated sin and God being patient and not um, not bringing down anger or wrath um, that we kind of talk about and kind of focus on when we look at the, the Old Testament. Yeah. So take a moment just to kind of sit on that. So we're going to do an unpacking on anger, or we've already done it, but we will we'll record one. So... You mentioned, you know, a lot of times we see God as angry in the Old Testament and and then loving in the New, Mm -hmm. and it's such an oversimplification that's not accurate. And so we have all these passages that he's long-suffering, that he's patient, that he endures. Um, It says, you know, your your anger is but for a moment. It's a very powerful, powerful verse. Your anger is but for a moment. Your love, your loving kindness is forever. We won't get into all of it now, but the idea of patience or long-suffering in the Old Testament, there can be two potential ways to read that. One way is in that patience, there's still anger, but the anger is just kept down and not acted on. The other way to read it is that in the patience, there actually is an absence of anger. There is no anger. And so that's, I lean more towards that second one. Mm-hmm. And the idea here, so we, we talk about drawing out a little chart on, on the whiteboard. We, we drew out a chart of like a horizontal line, at which, which is just God being patient, long-suffering, enduring, perseverant, accepting, tolerant, you know, all these things um, because he knows that we're made of dust, you know, Psalm 103. Yep. Mm-hmm. So he's very patient. Then there's these moments when his patience is laid to the side and the anger spikes, so it could be that there was there was no anger whatsoever until this anger spiked. It could be he was just keeping the anger down and then unleashed it in the spike. It's, I'll leave that to each, each person to what they think. Mm-hmm. I believe there was absence. But anyways, so we drew this horizontal line out. It was just a stable, solid, steady God, very reliable, loyal, faithful, all that. And then there would be this huge spike of anger and wrath. Um, and what you see, it was after long periods of rebellion, usually with Israel, as you pointed yep. out. 
Um, and then it would go right back to this long periods of the patients, the long suffering, et cetera, and then another spike. And so we saw a pattern emerging here that these spikes were only once in a while. And I don't, I don't, we didn't do an exact count yet. If I had to ballpark it, I would say in the Old Testament, there's maybe 30 examples somewhere in there of his mm -hmm. anger. Um, and so what's interesting is you got to draw out a 4,000-year history of the Old Testament. And in that 4,000 years, there's only 30 spikes. Now, with the 30 spikes, that's a lot. Everything's his perspective right so we always give this example imagine we've all known each other and we're all in our 90s and we've known each other our entire lives and let's say in that entire 90 years you guys saw me get angry three times in 90 years would you describe me as an angry person no no that would be an adjective you give because you only saw it three times so if you think about this in 4,000 years of humans being humans think about that 4,000 years of mm -hmm. humans sinning every day in 4,000 years, he got angry 30 times. <laughs> now, it might be more than that. It might be 40, it might be more. Because there might be times that he got angry that the Bible doesn't record. Mm -hmm. But the point is still there. It was fairly rare. And so like you said, Connor, you know, so when we draw that out and it's just this occasional spike and the spike represents anger, we can't really call God angry. We can't, it can't be an adjective of his. He's holy. He's loving. Those things are in this life and the next life. There's no anger in the next life for sure. So anger is not a natural default description of God. So the way that I phrase that now is anger is a tool, mm -hmm. a very, very powerful tool that God uses when necessary, that your rebellion is so deep, that your apathy is so um, you know, uh, um, strong that that your your um deceived way of thinking has messed you up so much that the only thing left to get your attention was this massive amount of anger or wrath and it usually did one of two things it either woke you up to repentance or it killed you um and the idea there being that god knew you weren't coming around at all and so now he's just got to wipe you off the earth because you're causing too much trouble but it was always delayed and so in my head, I always thought God was very quick to anger. Well, no, I mean, it flat out states in Psalms. He's slow to anger. And so I'm like, why do I keep thinking God's angry all the time when it says he's slow to anger and his anger is but for a moment? So anyway, so, so that started changing the way that, that I saw God with all that. And then also in uh, Zechariah eight seventeen, we see that God hates, uh, and so he has a strong aversion to evil. And so we've talked about uh, before the difference between hate and anger and how anger is actively uh, responding to something and hating is more of that aversion to. And so uh, we see in these different passages that God actually has both. Yeah. <coughs> and so what you see is God always grieves sin. Mm -hmm. He's always pained by it. He always hates it. He always detests it. He has that aversion to it. Why? Because it causes detriment. He doesn't want his children having detriment. So he always detests it. The anger becomes this occasional thing. It's just a, it's a cool snapshot. Um, and then you have um, Psalm 103, 8 to 14, Psalm 145, 8 to 9, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, John 3, 14 to 18, 1 John 1, 9, and 2, 1 to 2, Romans 11, 32. It's a big one. God loves every person in the world. And then we remind ourselves from that unpacking, that love is that you know, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the emotional delighting in, that passionate treasuring. It's that, that soulful, covenantal, committed loyalty. It's that mental, the mind, understanding, and patiently forgiving. 
And then with the strength, it's that act of contributing to the well-being, which can be meeting needs, going above and beyond the needs, and refining, right? Sharpening, correcting. <coughs> um, and so we know that love is patient. They, this is everything we're just saying. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger. So what's interesting is justice is a making of things right. Patience is a refraining in the moment from what maybe right or do. So there, there's an interesting dichotomy between patience and justice. That overall, he's both, and there's some tension there, that he's trying to make things right, but sometimes the way to make things right, big picture, is in the moment to refrain, um, which is what the patience is, and so that, that, that was kind of cool. Um, and so he's patient with us, and it goes back to Psalm 103, before he remembers that we're made of dust. And so he chose to die for us, offering atonement for and salvation from our sins. Thus, God's chosen to forgive our sins because of this. So that's another response to God's sin, is that he loves us, and he forgives us. Um, another response that we see to, to sin that God has is that God disciplines, so he builds up, he trains those he loves so that they become stronger to resist the next round of temptation or sin. And I think a lot of times um, we like kind of have really negative connotations with disciplines, and I think that's because it is uncomfortable. I mean, we may not like it, but God's right. using it as a training. He's using it to build us up. And uh, those key passages are Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Galatians 5, 16, and 25. And Second Peter one two through eleven. Let's before you go, Zach. Let's let's elaborate on this discipline thing. So go ahead and give the your free throw analogy. Oh yeah. Um. So a great analogy that we've that we've heard and discussed um, in some of the unpackings is um back to sports. It's a kind of a free throw analogy. And so you have um you're in a basketball game. It's the last last couple minutes. Um, the best player has to come up and has to hit those key free throws to win the game, and he misses both of them. And so how the coach responds to that situation, um, and I think it kind of correlates, and, and there's some parallels between how um, God responds to evil and sin in our lives. And so one response that the coach can have is that he's really angry. And so he has the uh, that player stay after each practice that week and just hit free throws. And the coach doesn't show up. He just expects him to go and hit those free throws and do he it. He has the trip. manager sit and watch, yeah. right? Yeah, somebody watch, but <laughs> he, he just makes him go and do that. And he's not really involved, and he just um, is kind of a, a kind of kind of coming from anger because he lost in the game. Yeah. Um, another way is that the coach um, sees what happened. He realizes that um, if he if this player, you know, gets better and matures in that area of the game, then that's going to help them win games in the future. And so he takes the time and he sits with that player and, and he watches him make the free throws and he, and he's there every time and make sure that he's intentional about shows him technique, shows him technique, um, encourages him kind of like the example that you were giving, um, when the quarterback throws an interception, you know, you're, you're trying to lift this player up so that they can, they can do better the next time and not put them down. Cause that's, that's detrimental to uh, mm -hmm. where they're going as a player and as a team. Yeah. And so, like God's response um, is in this in this scenario is to provide us training, provide us opportunity, discipline that's going to make us better to resist sin in the future. Yeah. So this is the wind sprints analogy that I think I've given in other episodes. So mm -hmm. we, we it's sometimes as Connor said, I'm like, oh, that is the way that we used to say it back in the beginning, and now we use that we can another same thing, but football. Um, two teams lose, healthy coach, unhealthy coach. Um, one team, one coach is mad, so he makes them do wind sprints as a punishment every week after practice. The other one, he realizes they lost because they ran out of gas. And actually, we lost, including me, the coach, because I made the I made the you know plays. Um, but they lost because they ran out of gas, and so they need more lung capacity. Well, how can I build lung capacity? Wind sprints. 
So I'll make them do wind sprints after practice every day, but I'll do it with it. I'll explain to them that while we're doing it, right? So it's the same thing, just different, different deal. Analogy. So in, in, in Hebrews 11, it said, you know, Lord says, I discipline those I love. This is the thing about English. And one of the reasons we do these unpackings and the definitions. We can, in English, discipline can mean punish. And so when we say that God disciplines those he loves, that means he punishes those he loves. But he does it because he, he loves them. No. The Hebrew word actually means to edify or build up. So when, 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 he, when I discipline those I love, I build them up, I, I edify them, I strengthen them, I make them do wind sprints, or I make them shoot free throws so that they can be stronger and more talented to win the game of life, to resist sin. So yes, doing a whole bunch of tedious free throws, or yes, running an hour of wind sprints is rough, but you need to understand, I, I God am not punishing you. Hmm. I'm making you stronger. That was incredible to me. When, when I begin to understand that. And so, yes, another response to how, how one of God's responses to sin is he will discipline you. But it's not saying that he will punish you. It's saying that he will, he will train you up and make you stronger so that you can resist it the next time around. And, yeah, I totally agree with that. Like kind of when we were going over this, it's um, kind of goes back to the view of justice, which I think is going to be unpacked later. <laughs> but, you know, the making of things right. Mm -hmm. And so when God yes. looks at the situation of, all right, you know, this he sinned, and now how do I make things right? And so that doesn't come to, all right, I just need to punish that person. Because as you know, in the different examples and kind of the conversation that we had, how is that building that person up? How is that bringing, um, you know, training them up, allowing them to be better prepared to resist sin in the future? And yeah. so God, I think seeing God as using discipline to do that, you know, to to bring that person up and kind of, you know, right, you know, kind of be prepared for the future instead of just an arbitrary punishment that isn't building up. Yeah. And I think that if we have a consistent view of the atonement, mm. then that eliminates the need for punishment for our sins. Yes. Well, no, 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 no. It doesn't eliminate the need for the punishment for our sins. It's already been punished because it's been punished on the cross. And so for us to say, no, God needs to punish me is a, a misunderstanding of the view of atonement that we've uh, explained in episode C, where since God has atoned for sin, he's taken the punishment. He's taken the shame. He's done all of that on the cross. And so as believers, we can start moving past that and just move towards really trying to focus on Christ more. And so we sin less, yeah. but the punishment isn't something that we need to do. And God's not going to say, yeah, you know, mm, the death of my son on the cross was insufficient for that sin. So I'm going to need you to take the punishment for right. that one. Right. And so it's just when we actually are consistent with our viewpoints on that, I think that it really helps get just a new depth to the understanding of it. Yeah. Cause there's that unhealthy common camp that yes, Jesus atoned and took the punishment. We get that, but you still need to do it as well. Cause it was you doing it. Right. And, and people think that subconsciously mm -hmm. or consciously, yeah. but we want to reject that. And so you want to recognize that, that the anger and wrath of God on sin was put on Jesus on the cross. The punishment was paid by Jesus. And, the, and God's not going to punish the sin twice, so he's not going to punish you. There's also a third camp, which is a little more controversial, but I'll throw it out there, that some would even argue, according to justice, um, you don't actually punish sin. You atone for it, and that's two different things. And the atone is to compensate. Punishment, so and the, the idea here being, and I think we'll come back to this a little bit later on in the discussion, but let's say, let's say Zach, you wrong me. 
so you need to compensate me for the wrong. Um, and I also, not only, let's say so you break, you break a furniture, a chair of mine. You need to pay for that chair to be replaced or fixed. Um, so you need to, that's the, that's the atonement. You need to compensate for that. But I also want you to have a chair broken. So yes, you need to be, to, to restore my chair, but also I need to go ahead and break your chair or have somebody break your chair so that we're even, right? You, so this idea of punishment is you now need to experience some sort of hardship, um, in return, a third camp is that justice would say no to that. There's just the hmm. atonement, not the punishment. But regardless of whether the, you're the second or third camp, the point still remains. There's no punishment on you. Yeah. Yeah. Connor, are you going to say something? or? Um, yeah, I guess just to add like another factor that goes into the discussion is that there are still consequences to sin. So there are earthly consequences regardless of, um, you know, talking about the atonement aspect of it. And so there's still going to be things that come with making that decision. Yeah. And so and point on that, because I always cringe when someone brings up that, but there's still consequences. It depends what they mean by that. A lot of times they're just putting a different word to punishment. Yeah. yeah. And so when they, when, if they say, oh, there's still consequences, you know, bad's still going to happen to you because of this. No, I, I'm, I'm going to push back on that. If it's more of a, a simple technical for every action there is a reaction and you it goes back to sell. our results of sins there's yeah. detriment prevention of benefits absolutely there's that but you'll even notice that when we did what a sin result in we didn't put punishment up there you know so but anyways yeah yeah i think zach you had a little summary of this i did have a little summary of this yeah. so really what this all uh from the verses what we can see is god's response is he has a deep love of people uh, he also grieves, hates, he's, uh, uh, and he has an aversion to detriment and disobedient things, which really we've been defining as turning away from him uh, into something else. But then he also, coupled with that, has a patient forgiveness of wrongdoers, especially to those who confess him as Lord. Um, and the last point that we have here is there is still that tough discipline and training, but it's for the purpose of strengthening, and this happens occasionally through anger. Yeah, so let's so we're gonna reword this now, and we're gonna give you six points. Um, so what we're seeing here about God and His response uh, to interactions with with evil and sin, um, we're gonna repeat ourselves here, but we're just kind of reorganizing it and clarifying. So what are things that you need to remember and understand about God and His interactions with sin? Point one: God loves all of humanity passionately desiring that they experience a full and beneficial well-being. Point two, thus he fully hates and detests and has a strong aversion to any and all things that are detrimental to those he loves. It grieves him deeply and it carves into him painfully. Thirdly, and yet he allows for and is patient with sin. Uh, and this is because of really what we talked about in episode C. He chose to make us out of dust with irrevocable, limited, significant free will and that moral responsibility because he understood that some beneficial goods can only occur in the midst of evil and sin. Four, he wants to minimize or limit the amount of sin. So he offers us guidance and discipline and training and commandments so that we can reduce the sin that we cause, we can influence others to do the same, and we can become more resilient with the sin that does come our way. Fifth, sometimes his incredible patient runs out. Deep anger arises and he uses terrible wrath as a tool 
to either shake people to repentance, obedience, uh, and or transformation because that is the only thing left they will pay attention to. Or, in also in other cases, it's to outright destroy the evildoers, for there is no repentance coming, and the sin is now endangering a core part of his plans. Mm-hmm, that's good. And then, lastly, uh, and this is really important in what we were just touching on, he demands atonement for each and every sin that's committed, which is, again, a repaying of the debt caused. And he decided to pay that debt himself mm-hmm. on the cross for all of humanity, and thus he forgives any who confess him as Lord, erasing the guilt, remembering it no more, releasing himself from any resentment or anger, and us from any obligation of penance. And we even have been saying that that might even uh, go beyond just those who confess him as Lord he forgives, uh, that he would actually forgive everyone besides the uh, unforgivable blasphemy. blasphemy. Yeah. yeah. So that we, we hope this is sitting in for you guys as you're listening to this and that this becomes very, very real and very, very powerful. So, so the point is, is we're moving away from this angry God. This is spectrum again. And we're not moving to this lighthearted, carefree God. Oh, go do what you want, right? Where we're not dealing with either of those extremes. It's that, it's that moderate tension balanced middle that God absolutely loves people. And he hates and grieves sin, less because it's an affront to his holiness, more because his holiness is untainable, mm-hmm. more because he just hates his creation experiencing this detriment. Yeah. Um, and 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 so so he so he, he grieves that, but he's also very patient with it because he knows it's part of the prologue, and that goes back to the episode C that we talked about. And so he's he he, he grieves it, but he patiently allows it because it's necessary for everything that was going on. Um. And, but he does. But he is trying to minimize it. So he will actively give us these commands and these prohibitions. He will actively have us walk in step with the Spirit if we let him. He'll he'll discipline. He'll train us. He'll he'll, he'll edify us and build us up, make us stronger, make us wiser, so that we cause less sins and, and we're ready to handle the other sin that comes. Occasionally using anger if necessary, you know, as that tool, mm-hmm. um, and then forgiving and erasing all the sin. So I, I want to make a note here on the, on the forgiving. We're going to do a whole study on this. Um, and this is going to be a little bit harder because when, when we did the study this summer, it was awesome, but we had the whiteboard and we were drawing out this whole chart. And so I'm going to try to verbalize the chart, but it was so eye-opening. Um, and I'm only going to give it brief because we'll go much more in detail when we do the unpacking on mercy. Um, but the idea here is that, you know, so when some wrong is committed, there seems like four responses that we expect of that wrongdoer they should sincerely grievingly confess and acknowledge that they sinned right they should they should it should bother them and they should admit <coughs> that they did it realize that it even happened yeah and then there's compensation the 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 debt that was created from that wrong needs to be paid for and then possibly a punishment or some sort of retribution or negative reinforcement and then also like training and development i.e if we saw that wrongdoer um, really striving to mature so they don't do it again. So imagine, Connor, that I, I sinned against you somehow, and I come to you, and I'm upset, and I acknowledge that I sinned against you, and it, it's bothered me that I've done it. And then I compensate you for whatever the wrong was that I caused. And then I also beat myself up a little bit and go through some kind of punishment myself to kind of make it all even. And I'm taking a class now on how to become a better person, right? If I'm doing all four of those things, it would make it easier for you to forgive me. But we learn that biblically, that's the human approach. 
the biblical approach is the atonement is the only thing required for the uh, expiation of guilt, the extinguishing of guilt. So once the compensation occurred, the guilt is, is now gone. Um, we're not going to go into all of it now because uh, the, it goes from the expiation to the propitiation, which is the regaining of goodwill toward, to the reconciliation, which is the restored relationship. And so we learned that the atonement piece, that compensation, the second one, is what goes right to the expiation. But the... the, the um, acknowledgement the confession and and the discipline the training those those outer two the first and fourth they're no longer required for the expiation of guilt but they are required for the reconciliation and restoration of the of the relationship um, and then that punishment piece is either taken off the table altogether or it's moved under the training as a negative reinforcement if needed right uh, but anyway so all that to say the uh, the biblical definition that we have of forgiveness is to forgive somebody is moving the responsibility of compensation or atonement off of the wrongdoer onto God. So when we say that God forgives us, what we're saying is, is he's moving. We sinned and justice dictates that there be a compensation or an atonement. Um, and so God's, God is just. And so God requires an atonement. But because he forgives us, he moves the responsibility for that atonement or that compensation off of us, the ones who did it, onto himself by dying on the cross. Uh, and that's really, really cool. Um, so when you guys first started wrapping your mind around this, and I think both of you probably grew up like I did in a little more stricter type of environment, what was going through your guys' uh, heads and hearts um, as this started coming true? Like, you know, for example, God is love and love is not irritated. So God's not irritated, right? And, 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 what, and what does that mean? Uh, I think that one of the... One of the main ways that this impacted me was recognizing since God isn't irritated with me. Well, let me say it this way. I felt that whenever I sinned, I was just kind of waiting for the bad thing to happen so then I could move past it and it would be okay. And so like um, I would sin and be like, oh man, I really shouldn't have done that. Uh, Lord, will you please forgive me? Okay, I think he's forgiven me, but I'm something something's going to happen because I, I have to be punished for this. So something, uh, walk around, stub my toe. Okay, good. Stubbed my toe. I had physical pain. That was bad for me. Punishment for my sin that I have. And it like, that's a simple example, but there's, I can't think of a specific one, but like there were different times when it's like, no, I, I sin pretty bad. Like this, whatever is coming, like this is going to be bad. And so ascribing every little thing that happened in my life to either a reward for, I did something good. And so this good thing happened. And so that's why, or I did something bad. So this is why, oh, this bad thing happened. Well, what, what did I, did I not realize it did something? And that's just a really, really bad way to live like it practically it's rough um just going through life trying to figure out well what it like i don't really get what i did what did i do what do i need to do it's just it's a really confusing place to be and so moving from that to god's not irritated with me he recognizes how detrimental it is for me to turn away from him because he realizes that i'm never going to get what i'm looking for anywhere else besides himself and so every single time that I choose to turn away from God, he's just like, no, what are you doing? Like, that's not, you think that this temporary thing, this artificial thing is going to give you what you're looking for, but it's, it, I'm, I'm everything that you need and everything that you would ever want. And I'm right here and I'm going to give you the fullest version of it, the most complete version of whatever it is you're looking for. And so 
if once I started to have that view of sin, um, that it's turning away from God to something else, and then coupling that with God's not mad at me. God isn't uh, annoyed with me and frustrated with me. There are times, we even see this in Exodus, like Moses went through all of his excuses of why he couldn't go and serve God. And then God, and then he finally just said, well, I, I just don't want to. Just send someone else. And then God got angry. But he's patient. And so I do want to recognize that anger does still happen. But if you stop having the view that God is angry first and have the view that that is something that might show up at some point, it alters everything because sure anger does like that is in the list of responses that God has but it's not his first response or his second response it's somewhere way down the list that he does use at times if he needs to but that's not going to be the first thing that he does and so it's just such it's it's a simple switch like it's the the concept itself okay god's not mad at me yeah that sure that makes sense these passages whatever but then when you actually sit down and you let that impact you you don't want to sin because you recognize it's it's interesting because if you're not being punished then you actually i found just in my own life that i want to sin less because it's just like no i something should be happening like something bad should happen to me because this already happened but then I realized that that's what the cross did. And so it just makes me so much more appreciative of it since I'm not responsible to punish, to receive punishment or uh, atone for it or anything. And it just it just changes the game so much. And it just pushes me straight back to the cross and back to God, which results in me sinning less. And so I th- really think that that's one of the main things um, that that just really impacted me switching from I have this list of things that I have to do this uh, do these things don't do these things maybe start working towards the good things like we were talking about in the last episode um, moving from that sort of mentality to God's not annoyed with me he's not gonna send these I'm not stubbing my toe because I sinned yesterday like all these little things it's just so much of a bigger picture and God just really wants to draw me to himself and it's just a powerful way to actually view this. Um, yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with all that, Zach, especially the, you know, not not the first response being anger. And I think that kind of plays into my my thoughts and kind of the things that stuck out to me initially when I heard it as well is that um, kind of the and also like the example you were giving with him hugging you and like stabbing him. With him. I think that's yeah, so that powerful. plays into it's a very powerful illustration and um and kind of going through this and see how God responds to my sin, it, it makes him more approachable. Um, and there's this less of the separation that I feel, um, when I sin and it's that he's still here with me. Um, and, um, kind of leads into that. He is so patient with me and it kind of reinforces that and changes, I guess one of my favorite things that we're going to get into in the next episode, but it changes how then I respond kind of on that next level. Um, so seeing God's response and understanding that better, um, kind of then helps me to then go after that mm-hmm. and respond to my own sin and how do I then continue on after that and I really really like that aspect yeah did you have something you wanted to say on that Janet okay um, I think that another aspect of how it changes the way I approach God is um, a lot of time like I know uh, this semester was rough and I had a bunch of papers that I turned in late and when I had 
when I was in that spot that I was doing something wrong, I did not want to talk to my professors. Like I didn't want to go and I didn't want to spend like didn't want to spend time with them, just kind of wanted to avoid them because like I knew that there was this underlying tension of like I hadn't done this thing that I was supposed to do. And so just like cut off communication and like that sort of thing. And I feel like too often if you have a view of God that he's just waiting to punish you and waiting to have you atone for your own sin, that's exactly what happens. Um, because if we are just, if you recognize that you sin, that's a good place. Like that's, that's one of the first things that we need to do when we sin. But if you're worried that God's mad at you, then you're going to avoid him because you don't, like it's just natural that's what you're going to do and so moving from that to recognize that that's not the case and what he's doing is he actually is the father in the prodigal son story and he's waiting for you to recognize that what you're doing isn't working and he's ready to run down and meet you where you are and it's gonna be hard for you the listeners to buy into this (laughs) and so even like at the beginning I was given a couple examples through my life there's more examples but those are ones that had really stood out to me and I just started getting more and more convinced this is true. And so that whole statement about, I don't believe that you are that way, God. Why? Because nobody's that good. And, and so me thinking that he's the most mature of counselors, he's the most mature of coaches, he's the most mature of bouncers, he's the most mature of parents. And so he's going to do things in the best, most healthiest way possible. And so he remains calm. He doesn't let himself get irritated. The anger is actually, a, it's, it's fierce, it's intense, but it's like a calm use of it when needed. And, and so it was hard for me, and I was almost too scared. Because again, because it's a trust issue. Hmm. Yeah. And you know, what if I begin to believe that God really is that way, and then he's not, and he comes down on me real harsh? I'm going to be devastated. Right, because I'm already intimidated. I'll be mm-hmm. devastated. Well, this was a number of years ago when I first started coming to grips with all this, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. And it's never it's never happened. I've oh. never been devastated. He's never come down on me harsh. And so so practically speaking in the application, um, is is how I would say this is go ahead for the next three weeks, live as if this is true. Mm-hmm. Just run a test. So here's what I want to do. For the next three weeks or two weeks or a month, whatever you call, I'm going to live as if everything that, that, that Shannon and Connor and Zach were talking about and the scriptures that they referenced, I'm going to live as, as if that's true, that God does not get irritated with me, that his anger is very delayed, if at all now, that he's ridiculously patient, ridiculously accepting. He is the prodigal son, dad, running down in excitement anytime that I come back to him. And so I don't have to be intimidated. I don't have to be scared. I don't have to walk walk on, on tiptoes. I'm just going to assume that's true and live that way and see what happens. Hmm. You're going to get your world rocked because it is true. So we're going to leave it there at that. Um, sit on it. Chew on it. You, you're going to come to this in your own time. But ask yourself, what if all of that is true? So we'll finish there. Um, the next episode is the last one in the series, which is now given everything we've been discussing, given God's response to sin. What is our response to sin? What is our interactions? How do we prevent it and limit it? And then when it does happen, what do we do about it? 
and we'll do that in the next one. So if you guys need encouragement, if you want more quite more answers and more elaboration on this, email us at info at rekindlingministries.com or go to the website, rekindlingministries.org. Um, we love you guys. We're going to actually, when we sign off here in a minute, we're going to say a prayer for all of you that are listening to this, that you can begin to experience this, mm-hmm. that this begins to be true for you and yeah. that you just get moved to the core of your being. So we love you and we're rooting for you as you go through this. So thanks guys very much.